0: Hello and welcome to The X-Ray, I'm Fernando Espuelas. I'm sitting here in Washington DC on a beautiful spring day, the sun is shining, the sky is a deep blue, there are flowers popping up everywhere. And at this moment, it's tempting to think we don't have a worry in the world. But actually, we're careening at high speed towards the 2024 election, and there are some clouds on the horizon, one of which is social media. Let's remember that in 2016, social media was exploited, was weaponized by Russian intelligence to interfere in our election. And in 2020, it was utilized to foment the big lie that the election had been stolen, leading to January 6th and all the violence that we know so well. And more recently, there's rising suspicion and fear that TikTok, which has become a phenomenon in the US and across the world, is actually a front for the Communist Party of China, a mechanism to vacuum up tons of data, personal data, valuable data that can then be utilized in an information campaign against us. So today I want to take a deep dive into how social media actually works. Why is it such a devastating weapon in an information campaign and what can we do about it? With me is one of the world's experts, Frances Haugen. You know her as the Facebook whistleblower. She released thousands of sensitive documents that prove that Facebook knew its platform were being utilized in disinformation campaigns, that they were being utilized, including to foment violence in certain countries. Now my conversation with Francis Haugen. Francis Haugen, welcome to the X-ray.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here.
0: Thank you so much. Um, let me start out with a sort of a broad-based question as we head into the next presidential election cycle. Uh, what do you think is the unique risk that social media presents for democracy in this country?
1: Hmm. So on a really basic level, the way social media differs from traditional forms of media is that instead of having our attention directed by human beings, our attention, you know, what we focus on is directed by algorithms, which we are not able to see we are not able to ask questions about. We can't inspect the consequences. You know, what are we seeing and not seeing? We have no idea. They've intentionally kept it from us. And so on the most basic level, the fact that there is no democratic accountability or oversight for social media, it itself corrupts the democratic process. Because without being able to understand what we're consuming or not consuming, we don't know for sure that we are able to make objective decisions that are in our own best interests as a society.
0: And that's because, you know, when we say algorithm, I mean, a lot of people know what that is, but a lot of people don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you give us the 22nd version? What's an algorithm and and why is it so critical to understanding the power of social media and and the danger as well?
1: So an algorithm is just a series of steps. So imagine you are making a sandwich, you know, you have a turkey sandwich you love making for lunch every day. You actually use an algorithm to put that sandwich together. You know, you walk over the cabinet and you get the bread out. You open the bag, that's your second step, uh, or maybe opening the cabinet is your first step, or walking over is the first step. You have a series of steps. You, you take the bread out, you put it on the counter, you go to the fridge, you take the turkey out, put it down, put the cheese down, whatever your condiments are. Like, you have a series of steps. When we used to have newspapers, when newspapers were our primary form of information, you know, the editors that put those papers together used algorithms that they would have never described it that way. You know, they said things like certain stories are more important because they impact more people. They impact more critical aspects of people's lives. We're going to put those on the front page. We want to make sure you see them, you know, versus a story that maybe got put on the 10th page or the 15th page. You know, they had ways of structuring the information we consumed and I don't want to say that was perfect. There were biases. There were other alternative motives. You know, we we had to pass laws about things like transparency of ownership about newspapers or media concentration rules saying you can't own too many newspapers to create like an echo chamber, you know, make make it seem like there's consensus when in reality you control all the voices. Today, we've taken that human out of the loop. Instead of having a human sit there and say, you know, what information is really important for us to know we've delegated that vital role to a computer and that computer doesn't necessarily even have explicit rules. You know, it has a a series of different factors it takes into consideration, but because there are so many and they're, and they're combined by a black box, they're combined by an artificial intelligence system um, that, 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 even the people who built it don't necessarily know how it works. They know you know, what wow. data they're putting in, but they don't understand how the computer recombines those to create different priorities. And unfortunately, when you have those kinds of black boxes putting together what you do or don't get to see, often bias creeps in that, that, that leads to consequences that are not good for us. So I'll give you a really simple one. And,
0: and if, if I oh, could sure. interrupt just for sure. a second, just because I think yeah, uh, the, the concept of bias is so critical here because ultimately, even though there's the black box and there's artificial intelligence, there are humans who write the algorithm to a certain extent, mm-hmm. right? There are inputs from humans. And because we all have some unconscious bias at the very least, if not overt bias, we're, we're, uh, transporting our own biases into these algorithms, and the result then, by definition, is is what uh, twisted uh, or deformed in some fashion, right? Well, that's that's the part that's kind
1: of remarkable about this whole situation, which is that that even people trying really, really hard to account for intentional bias can't account for how the machine itself corrupts the intent. So, I'll give you an example: mm. uh, a, a reporter did an interview with me and he was like, can you please explain to me this thing that I saw on Instagram? You know, I just had a baby six months ago, cute, healthy baby, baby boy. Uh, We made an Instagram account for the baby. The baby has five other baby friends that are all kind of family friends. These accounts only have cute, adorable babies on them. And yet 10% of his feed is mangled suffering children you know kids in the hospital that are dying with tubes coming out of them uh kids in accidents you know things that are just horrific and he's like why why did we go from cute adorable healthy happy babies to babies that are suffering and i think what it is is that instagram has a thing called a recommender system where it says hey you've been engaging with a lot of baby content i'll show you more baby content But because that system is optimized for something called engagement, that means can we get you to click, can we get you to comment, can we get you to reshare, that uh, it turns out or or dwell, right? And even even just having it on your screen and not scrolling by is considered you noticed it. Um, And and, and the thing is that, uh, you know, if you are the father of a brand new adorable baby and you see a suffering baby, you cannot scroll by. Right. And the right. algorithm has learned what content gets people to stop and pay attention. And so, did anyone at Instagram say, "Do you know what people need more of? They need to look at suffering children." You know, no one at Instagram said that intentionally. But because these systems ha- are 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 wandering the wilderness, like like they're they're being optimized for a relatively small number of factors. You know, it's like, "Can we get you to hang out more?" Can we get you to put more comments on things, put more likes on things? Um, It turns out that the, 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 the computer will find a path to that goal that we might not agree with. And so the big thing I'm always pushing for is that if we don't have public transparency of how the systems are designed and the outcomes of the system, there is a business interest in not asking too many questions. So it's not that they tried to do any of these things nefariously, it's just that they won't invest enough in safety unless there's external
0: pressure. In many interviews, which I've watched, uh, you talk about this issue. Uh, I think something that has been very shocking to everyone, really, over the last couple of years since you came out and and discussed the, the problems with Facebook, is that in fact, this is on purpose. The business logic, which rewards engagement and clicking and commenting, and which leads to, to uh, it is actually the logic of the business, right? I mean, the more that happens, regardless of how it's done, leads to greater revenue and profitability. So, can we say that this is really just a, a function of, of the black box, or can we say this is the business model?
1: So, I, I think it's one of these things where, um, so the, 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 the classic thing that got the headlines last year was that Facebook used to be optimized just for keeping you on the site as long as possible. Because the business model is, uh, if you um, uh, click on, you know, you you don't pay for Facebook directly, you know, you you pay through being exposed to advertising that you either view or that you click on. Um, But Facebook had a problem, which is they can only show ads if other people are producing content that you're consuming right? Because they run those ads next to content that you actually came to, you intended to consume. What they found was that unless you rewarded those content creators, you know, rewarded your friends with comments and likes and reshares, that people produced less content. And unfortunately, that when they shifted to say, hey, we're going to start rewarding and distributing content more if it gets more engagement, because we we see there's this virtuous cycle that if you get more engagement, you produce more content, we're going to train you to produce high engagement content. Um, Unfortunately, that also biases like very extreme divisive content. And so I think there's a thing of saying um, the business model does not get penalized today for externalities. That means if there's a cost of a choice that's beneficial to the business, that's borne by someone outside the business, there's no consequence for the business itself. So if it means that that father, that young, that father of the young child, if he gets tormented by suffering children, like pictures of suffering children, there's no consequence back on Facebook for that, other than he might use the product loss. And so that's part of the cycle here.
0: And is this dynamic, um, I I think one of the explosive things that came out of your disclosures was the utilization of Facebook outside of the United States Mm -hmm. in particular uh, to foment uh, ethnic violence. Which is quite shocking, right? And, um, and I guess one of the prime examples was Myanmar um, and a genocide there. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? And what is the responsibility, if not culpability, of Facebook in that situation?
1: So Myanmar is a great illustration because it shows a number of different core problems. So the first core problem was literally the Myanmar government was sending officers in their military to Russia to learn how to run information operations. And this has been documented by the New York Times. It has gone. It went back for years before the genocide. The Myanmar military, uh, in the run-up to the genocide, began distributing um, very aggressively content that uh, dehumanized the Rohingya, which was a Muslim minority in the largely Buddhist country. Right. And um, unfortunately, uh, and that escalated up to the point of saying, like, you know, we, we can't waste any more time. We need to kill them now. And about twenty five thousand people died, and about I think seven hundred thousand ended up as refugees. Very dramatic. Um, so the place where this gets interesting in my mind is so Facebook systems. So we can design social media sites like Facebook to be places where we connect with our family and friends and are safe, right? We don't we don't they don't need to be censored. They are designed from the start to be safe. Facebook, as it's designed today, though because it hyper amplifies things because of this like algorithmic acceleration towards extreme topics, um, because it is very vulnerable to things like information operations, it really is only safe if it's monitored. And there's, there's ways of putting, you know, emergency brakes on it, if you will. Myanmar was considered uh, a loss leader, right? That it, was a, it was a country that was under a program called free basics, where Facebook paid for people who used Facebook's products, they would pay their data bill on their phones, which sounds really trivial to people living in the United States where you're like, oh, of course I have 5G high speed, blah, 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 blah. Sure. But for people who are living on maybe only a few dollars a day, you know that money is meaningful. And what, what, what that meant though, was that Facebook lost money on Myanmar. And so they didn't invest much in human beings' That would say, listen to complaints that came out of Myanmar. And while the genocide was rearing up, this is before people died, lots and lots of people on the ground tried to make Facebook aware that this was happening. And because Facebook's bureaucracy was not designed to really escalate concerns from, you know, these places that were more peripheral to Facebook, um, you know, the UN later found that the fact that Facebook had no way for anyone to contact them was actually part of Facebook's contribution to what happened. That they could have thrown, wow. they could have thrown on the emergency brake, but they, they literally, um, because of their negligence had no ability to.
0: Well, let me ask you about that, because mm-hmm. th- that's just so shocking, right? Uh, um, the loss of life, but also the implications uh, internationally for something like this. Facebook, at least when you were there, was roughly a trillion dollar company, yeah. literally one of the most valuable enterprises on the planet. Uh, profitability, that was the envy, really, of almost any company except Google. Um, how could they not have sufficient resources to deal with each market in which they've launched?
1: That is such a beautiful question. Is that a choice? It's such a beautiful question. So so a, a thing that I saw over and over again at Facebook was like a sense of learned helplessness that, you know, um, I totally get it. They have, they have a business to run, right? Like there's this question of like, how much do they actually owe in terms of safety? Facebook felt that they, you know, didn't have enough money to invest in these places, right? Because they were losing money for each customer they had. In reality, that was a false choice. You know, they had something like 35% profit margins when I was right. there. They were making billions and billions and billions of dollars. Um, when, we, when we talk about like, what, what would like the baseline adequate level of safety costs? There's no way it would have cost more than another couple billion dollars. right? But they just, because they were unaccountable, because no one could see the choices they were making, no one could ask them questions about, is that choice being resolved the way the public would resolve it if the public had known?
0: Wow. So damning, right? And and spectacular. You know, I think that's a good segue. Let's let's turn back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. and the opening question. We're, we're roughly two years away from the next election. Um, uh, Donald Trump is now being permitted back uh, on Facebook. He already was permitted back on Twitter, although I don't think he's tweeting yet. Um, a lot of the dynamics that led to January 6th, uh, the insurrection, the utilization of these platforms to drive engagement, as you said, anger and then activation of, of the people. Who, who committed atrocious violence here in D.C. How are things the same and different? I mean, are we in, in a better position to avoid that kind of dynamic? I don't mean mm. an insurrection literally, but <laughs> that, the tumult in our election or or have things uh, transitioned to, to a better situation?
1: So I, th- I think there's different tiers of crisis um, that we need to look at. So at the, the really most basic level, you know, there's this question of like, will we have another emergency where like Trump is removed? in such an exceptional way, right? So for the, for, for, context, for the listeners, you know, um, prior to January 6th, Facebook had an explicit policy that they did not censor politicians, that if a politician wanted to say anything they wanted on Facebook, that, you know, that's, that's how it was going to be. Um, and because of the severity of what happened on January 6th, um, they made an exception, right? And they took down Trump. And very soon after that, they announced um, a political speech policy around when they would remove political leaders from their platform. I think what's really important about that is that they're beginning to acknowledge the idea that they, they is real, there are real-world consequences for choices that they make that they, they, they can't just like wash their hands and say, we're neutral. You know, they've, they've decided, you no, know, we have, we're going to have an escalation framework now for like, when do we step in? And that actually is important. That, that, that is a real material difference. Is it enough though? Um, well, that was I say, now the second question is, that's kind of like a last safety net. You know, it's, it's not, that's not the first step to safety. That's like the house is already on fire. Are we allowed to call the fire brigade? Right. right. So one of the things that I think is unacceptable is Facebook knows there's lots of little ways in which they can make their platform safer or more dangerous. And so on election day, 2020, there were lots of little things where they said, hey, we know we have vulnerabilities with some of these technologies. So for example, live video, we've had situations where um, people have committed mass murders and broadcast them live on Facebook Mm -hmm. Live. We know Mm -hmm. that because this is a... Mm -hmm. A fundamentally harder medium to police, like uh, to supervise. Um, We're 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 not going to hyper amplify it. So they had been giving a score boost. They've been giving artificial distribution to live video, where you know every piece of content earns kind of like a, a score, right? Like the idea of like how important is this piece to you? Like should we show it to you? And for live video, they were giving all of that content a boost of like 850 times the score would have otherwise earned. Wow. And so on election day, they said, maybe we should only boost that 65 times because we know we have problems with this. The fact that the public doesn't know what those safety breaks are, right, that we don't know what the policies are for when to apply them and how, I think is really unacceptable because... Facebook is going to be weighing little tiny trade-offs. You know, are they willing to be 0.1% less profitable, 0.2% less profitable, but have X, Y, Z safety measures? I don't think it's appropriate for them to make those decisions in isolation. And so, you know, until they're willing to disclose that, I would say we're not ready for the election.
0: Wow. So- Let's switch gears a little bit to you. You've had really transformative impact with your disclosures. Um, I won't list everything that's happened, but everything from congressional hearings to SEC lawsuits to, I believe you're speaking to European governments as Mm -hmm. well, to get everyone on the same page as to what's actually happening. Two years later, more or less, was it worth it? I mean, you've paid a personal cost. It's been quite quite a dramatic time in in your life has it been worth it. Do you think uh, you're having the impact you want it to have?
1: So I don't know if you're aware of this, but in Europe, if we were to like stack break all the generational laws when it comes to tech, like, like what are the big landmark laws that have passed over the last 30 years? So we have things like GDPR. So GDPR came through in 1996 Right. Um, It's it's a a geriatric. And this is
0: the so people who don't know that is it's the it's the permission system that customers theoretically have power to tell what information you're sharing with any website. Oh, sorry.
1: I I messed up the dates. So sorry. Section 230 is from 1996. GDPR is like 2000. I think it passed in like 2011, but it came into force in like 2016-ish, somewhere in there. I need to double check those dates. Those are kind of like the two big laws. There was a children's protection law in like the late 90s. There's not been a lot of things. Early last year, so in April of last year, the European Union passed one of those generational laws called the Digital Services Act. So the Digital Services Act, for the first time in history, says if you are a very large platform, which means like you're able to, if you're interacting with, you know, More than 40, 50 million people in Europe alone. So you have to be interacting with, I think it's 10% of their population. Um, You have to actually answer questions from the public. So, you know, I said at the beginning, like, we don't know what the algorithms are. We don't know what the consequences Mm -hmm. of the algorithms are. Right. So, Europe was the first place in the world to pass a law saying, hey, guess what? You have to tell us what risks you know about. And when we ask you questions, you have to answer. And that sounds really, really basic, but it, that has not been true at any point in, in history for a tech company. And so uh, Europe was uh, the Europe, I've, I've talked to people who passed that law. Um, they did a big public hearing on it. And they talked about the fact that the, you know, they had been trying to get that across the finish line for four or five years. And the information in my disclosures helped them get it across the finish line because they had, had a lot of perceptions wow. of what was going on on the platform. And suddenly they actually had hard data. And We could point at it and say, "Look, like we know now that all these things are happening."
0: What are the odds that something similar uh, could happen in the U.S. in terms of legislation to protect our customers?
1: Um, so, I think there's a big opportunity around transparency. So, there's things like the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, which uh, was, uh, I believe, has been reintroduced to Congress. It got proposed last session. Um, you know, we have things like nutrition labels on food. You know, it's not a liberal pol- policy; it's not a conservative policy to say, "Hey." You have the right to know if the can says it has the Senate, it it has to have that in there. Because if we don't get to have that information, we can't make good choices. And I I think there's a big opportunity for there to be common ground to say, hey, no, 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 no. Like we deserve to know what we're consuming. Um, And so my hope is that we can get
0: something like that through Congress. Fantastic. We're almost out of time, but I, I, I read something about you, which I was very intrigued by. It's kind of switching gears a little bit. Uh, while at Google, you worked on a project uh, called Secret Agent Cupid, uh, which uh, turned into Hinge, which what is- was that
1: when I was in business school.
0: Oh, okay, okay. I misread that. Then, tell tell me about that. The the dynamics of uh, online dating, of course, are are quite fascinating and and controversial at at the same time. What was your key insight for the product that became Hinge?
1: Um, So, the the concept behind Secret Agent was was very similar to what Hinge became. um, Only was it was ironically a Facebook app um, back when we people could write Facebook apps. Um, So, the idea was that that there are many people in your social circle who are like friends of friends who, uh, you might be really happy dating. Um, so for example, uh, the guy I went on to marry, he had been friends with most of my friends for years and I had never met him. Right. Um, so there's a lot of those kinds of serendipitous connections where, you know, your, your friends are, are good judges of like what you, you will actually enjoy in terms of other friends or other romantic partners. And so, um, that was the, the, the core insight. And that was what uh, Hinge was originally based on.
0: Very cool. I have friends who use Hinge and they're yeah. very happy. So that was a good insight.
1: It's really fun because at, at parties, like people will like, you know, bring up their origin stories or whatever. And they will be like, "Oh well, yeah, I met my partner in Hinge. And I'll be like, I yeah. helped found Hinge. I'm so happy you're happy. You know, I'm so glad you got married.
0: That's awesome. Um, and, and last question. Um, uh, sure. It's a very personal question, I guess, but mm-hmm. um, are you optimistic uh, about, what's going to happen with social media? Is it going to go, I mean, right now it seems a lot like cigarettes, right? I mean, it's very popular, but uh, it, it quote unquote kills in some, at some level. Do you think uh, that there's a good future? Are you, do you think that's something good's going to come out of all this? So
1: I think one of the the really key differences on cigarettes is like the problem with cigarettes was really about short-term gratification versus long-term gratification, right? So, so ask most smokers in the instant they smoke a cigarette, are they enjoying it? And most of them will say, I deeply enjoy cigarettes. I do not enjoy the consequences of cigarettes, right? It's part of why people switch to vaping. Um, in the case of social media, like people talk about how using social media makes them feel bad. Like it's not even a thing where like they use social media and then afterwards they regret it, though that happens too. Um, I, I think it's one of these things where we are already seeing innovation within the social media space of people coming in and saying, well, what, what's the part that actually makes you feel good? And can we still get that without getting the parts that make you feel bad? So things like Be Real, which is a social network where you can't use any filters, you can only post once a day.
0: Right? You know, it's
1: it's it's designed not to make you look cool. It's designed to just connect you with people. Um, I, you know, it's it's telling that that's the fastest growing social network amongst Gen Y, right? Um, and so I, I, it's hard for me to get too fatalistic of like, there's no path out because We actually haven't dealt with these technologies for that long, right? I I think it's one of these things where um, the fact that Facebook refuses to live in the light means it's going to be hard for them to get good employees, right? These things are self-limiting to a certain extent. And so uh, I have a lot of optimism that we are just at the beginning of our journey. And uh, I think we're going to look back in five years and be very surprised at what we've accomplished.
0: Fabulous. Well, let's let's leave it on that. Uh, Optimistic. Now, we could talk for a couple hours, which maybe some other time we'll do that. But Francis Haugen, thank you so much for joining the X-Ray.
1: Have a good day. Thanks for inviting me.
0: My big takeaway from this conversation with Francis Haugen is that we're totally exposed. The same laws and regulations that allow social media to be weaponized against the democratic system are there unreformed. What's going to happen in the 2024 election? Well, if things continue on this path, if Congress does not intervene, if the FTC doesn't intervene, if other agencies don't take some sort of action to protect Americans, we're going to be vulnerable to this devastating technology that is a lot of fun with the cat videos, but also terrible when it foments insurrections and violence across the world. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you so much to my guests, Francis Haugen, and also to the production team, Nicole Legacy, Sydney Richards, and Rene Pineda. I'm Fernando Espuelas. For more information on this podcast, check out x ray.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray with Fernando Espuelas is an editorially independent production of Asia one.